1: Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to Synovus Energy's third quarter results conference call. As a reminder, today's call is being recorded. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Following the presentation, we will conduct a question-and-answer session. You can join the queue at any time by pressing star 1. Members of the investment community will have the opportunity to ask questions first. At the conclusion of that session, members of the media may then ask questions. Please be advised that this conference call may not be recorded or rebroadcast without the express consent of Synovus Energy. I would now like to turn the conference call over to Ms. Sherry Wendt, Director, Investor Relations. Please go ahead, Ms. Wendt.
0: Thank you, Operator, and welcome everyone to our third quarter 2020 results conference call. Here with me is our President and Chief Executive Officer, Alex Porbe, our Chief Financial Officer, John McKenzie, our Executive Vice President Upstream, (coughs) Nori Ramsey, and our Executive Vice President Downstream, Keith Chesson. I refer you to the advisories located at the end of today's news release. These advisories describe the forward-looking information, non-GAAP measures, and oil and gas terms referred to today and outline the risk factors and assumptions relevant to this discussion. Additional information is available in our annual MD&A and our most recent annual information form and Form 40F. The quarterly results have been presented in Canadian dollars and on a before royalties basis. We have also posted our results on our website at synovus.com. Alex will provide brief comments and then we will turn to the Q&A portion of the call. Please go ahead, Alex.
2: Thanks, Sherry, and good morning, everybody. As you know, on Sunday we announced a strategic combination between Synovus and Husky to create a resilient, integrated energy leader. This transaction optimizes our cost structure, expands our market access, and strengthens our balance sheet. It positions us as a more resilient company with increased and more stable free funds flow. It also gives us opportunities to expand margins across the value chain, lowering our break even, and accelerating deleveraging and returns to shareholders. You have already seen us drive significant costs out of our business through corporate and operating optimizations. I'm extremely confident that we will achieve the goals we have set with the transaction and realize the potential of the combined company. But today I'm here to talk about our third quarter results. I want to start by giving credit to our staff at Synovus for keeping our operations running safely and reliably and for continuing to adapt to all the additional measures we've put in place in response to this pandemic. I continue to be impressed with the dedication of each and every one of our employees and how they continue to support each other through this time. Through all of this, our teams remain focused on delivering safe and reliable operating performance. We've had zero significant incidents across our operations to date in 2020. Our teams have successfully navigated the health and wellness challenges of the pandemic, while increasing production and executing planned turnarounds at our two oil sands facilities, as well as in our conventional operations. As well, this quarter we saw some significant health and safety milestones across our operations. At Christina Lake, our drilling operations, as well as completions and well services teams, achieved one year without a recordable incident, and our conventional operations marked a one-year milestone since recording a significant process safety event. This third quarter once again demonstrated our flexibility and ability to utilize our full suite of assets to maximize the price received for every barrel. It reinforced our commitment to disciplined spending, maintaining our low operating and capital cost structure, and deleveraging our balance sheet. As crude oil prices showed signs of a gradual recovery through the summer, we were able to increase our crude oil production and clear our inventory of stored barrels to capitalize On the significantly improved benchmark price for Western Canadian Select. We continued purchasing low-cost production credits from peers so we could produce above our curtailment limit that allowed us to produce high quarterly volumes at our Christina Lake facility. This increase was partially offset by planned turnaround and maintenance activities. Our oil sands operation this this quarter averaged almost 386,000 barrels a day up from 373,000 barrels a day in the previous quarter, and a 9% increase from the third quarter of 2019. We recorded adjusted funds flow of $414 million, which was a significant increase from the second quarter of 2020, when the unprecedented drop in oil prices resulted in adjusted funds flow of negative $462 million. And we generated free funds flow of $266 million in the third quarter and made meaningful progress on reducing our net debt. At the end of the third quarter, net debt declined to approximately 7.5 billion from 8.2 billion at the end of the second quarter of 2020. We had an operating loss of 452 million and a net loss of 194 million in the third quarter of 2020. The operating loss was largely due to an impairment charge of 450 million on the Borger refinery negative operating margin from the refining and marketing segment. While we are pleased with our performance in this quarter we expect commodity price volatility for the foreseeable future. That's why we look forward to the increased cash flow stability and enhanced free funds flow the transaction with Husky will provide. With that I'm happy to take your questions.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder, you can join the queue to ask a question by pressing star one. We will now begin the question and answer session and go to the first caller. First question comes from Mano, Holsoff with Security.
3: Good morning, everyone. Uh, I have one question, and it's unrelated to the uh, to the Husky transaction. Maybe you could just give us your thoughts on the outlook for your SAGD operations over the, uh, the near term, and, and more specifically, to, to the extent that... WTI continues to trade in the mid thirties in the heavy differential, call it in the oh. in the ten dollar range. What can we expect operationally through uh year end and maybe even early twenty twenty-one? I'm assuming uh dynamic uh storage becomes a part of the conversation, but any thoughts on that front would be uh would be helpful.
4: Sure. Hey Mano, it's Keith Chess on um, you know, I'll I'll start and maybe Nori can talk about the operational side of things. But when we look at uh Kind of the economics you know even in the mid 30 dollar wti range and and the tight differential that we see we, we still see ourselves as as variable cost net back positive so you know we would anticipate to to produce uh through this time at uh at full rates um you know as we look forward obviously with curtailment ending in december uh we are unconstrained and no longer have to uh have to acquire. Uh, production credits to be able to do so. So it's something that we watch uh, really closely uh, and monitor and and because of the low cost nature of our production, uh, we're able to produce and and generate uh, positive variable cost netback.
5: And just to add to that, it's Nora Ramsey from our upstream business. Um, If you remember um, in the second quarter, we actually curtailed our um, production in our all sands business by month on month about 60,000 barrels a day, and it's some, in, in some days it was actually down 80,000 barrels a day. Um, we brought that all back on, as you can see in our third quarter, it's 9% higher than our, our second quarter overall average production, and we, we have full flexibility um, to increase that up to our um, higher levels. Um, and again, curtailment was obviously limiting what we could do, and once we from December onwards, we'll have a lot more flexibility. But it's always going to be a value conversation. Um, It's the value rather than the actual volume of production that we're we're most interested in. Thanks, Menno.
6: Thank you.
1: Next question comes from Greg Party with RBC Capital Markets.
7: Thanks. Good morning. Uh, A couple for you. Maybe, Alex, just to pick up on the safety theme, Uh, just wondering if there are specific actions or or thoughts you have that you know will be taken uh to ensure that the combined entity here proposed is is going to have similar you know safety and reliability as as Synovus. Is there anything you can add around that?
2: Yeah, I know Greg. I'm I'm happy to talk about that and and I I think as you guys can tell every quarter uh I usually start out by talking about our safety performance and uh it is uh the number one focus of of this company uh, commodity prices can come and go, but our commitment to to human safety and process safety is 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 our number one criteria at all times. so um, you know as as we get through this deal uh, and the deal closes, uh, everybody can expect that the exact same focus on human and process safety uh, that you've seen from us, so over our entire history, is is going to continue, and and we're going to ensure that we put the resources uh, towards it uh, to ensure that uh, we can deliver that that exact same uh, track record.
7: Okay, great, and and the second one really comes back to um, how we should be thinking about hedging policy again uh you know in the context of the new organization very different integration prospects but also kind of you know tied to that question will be is is with would, would, if you were to continue hedging would it remain connected with storage optimization i'm just wondering if you can dig into that
2: sure maybe uh keith can can start that and then john may want to weigh in yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. Um, you know,
4: when we look at, at hedging, there's kind of really two two different components. One is around kind of the optimization side of the business where we're really trying to capture value from our storage and our transportation assets. Um, you know, when we think about that, you know, really we're we're seeing a, a value opportunity, you know, over a period of time or in different locations. And to capture that opportunity, we lock up, you know, both sides of that transaction. So you know, from a financial side, we may lock it up, and then as uh, as that price settles, there could show plus or minuses. But when we actually uh, physically sell the barrels, we realize that on the netback side of things. so So we actually see a, uh, a an uptick and and maybe just a a, a key example of that was kind of in April where you know our our barrels were selling for about four dollars a barrel. You know, we could have produced and sold in Hardesty for that price. We chose not to do that. We, we stored those barrels or transported those barrels down to the Gulf Coast and stored them there. And then, you know, come June or July, we, we sold those barrels and, and realized an uplift of, of almost uh, $25, $30. Um, in that transaction, though, we would have locked in the, the WTI components as well as the physical sale. And because of that, you know, if if WTI settled at 35, we may have shown a realized loss, even though our netbacks were were materially higher than what they would have been in April. So, you know, when we think going forward, obviously uh, um, the combined entity uh, has a lot less exposure to the WCS WTI differential and hardesty, Um so that becomes less of a concern for us. But but the combined entity still has you know exposure to WTI. So so maybe with
8: that. John, if you want to pick up sure. on kind
4: of our corporate hedging.
8: So, Greg, I, th- I think there's three, you know, answers to your question that I would give you. And I think Keith really touched on the first. is part of this transaction, is about us acquiring a number of other assets that give us many, many more options to take our molecules to market to optimize the value that we get for them. So, you should absolutely believe that we're going to continue with the type of optimization hedging that, that Keith has just described. And, and for example. You know today we would have about ten million barrels of storage. you know going forward, we're going to have closer to sixteen as well as incremental pipes. So those opportunities you know are going to present themselves in um, in increased ways for us, and we intend to take full advantage of that. Secondly, I would say that you know one of the major reasons for doing this is to uh, reduce the volatility in our cash flows. So sort of at a corporate level, um, you know, that becomes an inherent hedge, uh, or this transaction will become an inherent hedge uh, in how we manifest our cash flow streams. But finally, you know, I would come back to, you know, something that Alex and I have said, um, you know, time and time again, is, is a underlevered balance sheet is the best um, way to hedge at a corporate level to ride through these commodity price fluctuations. And we've been really clear since we started talking about this transaction that that balance sheet deleveraging is our number one commitment and you can expect us going forward you know to continue to prioritize the balance sheet on a free cash flow basis until we've reached a point that we're uh, we're comfortable with our debt levels
7: okay terrific thanks all thanks next
1: question question comes from prashant rao with city group
9: good morning thanks for taking the question i just wanted to uh, talk about the hedges just a little bit more. I, I appreciate all the color that you've given. On the current program, though, and and I think, you know, the communications team, the IR staff at you know, Sunos did a good job of, of, of communicating this to to all of us in the MDN and the MDNA disclosures, disclosures highlighting that from TQ. But the current program, you know, how, how should we be thinking about, you know, how much volatility that might cause in FFO per share, you know, uh, next quarter, or I guess this quarter and next quarter? And, and, and I guess, you know, related to that question, you know, if I if we adjust for those impacts this quarter, it seems that, you know, the the core sort of FFO per share was, was really mid 40 cents per share, which I think speaks to the underlying quality of the asset base to perform in this environment. So just curious about that, you know, sort of thinking about how we should think about the remainder of this hedging program you entered into going forward with the next sort of four to six months and and also sort of you know if that's the right takeaway there about the core reliability and performance of the assets
8: yeah Prashant, it's john mckenzie i think you're thinking about the hedge program the wrong way and the hedge program that we've put in place um locks in additional profitability and my suspicion is you're confusing accounting treatment with with straight up economics and You'll notice in this quarter we sold many more barrels than we produced, and we took the opportunity in Q2 to start storing barrels rather than sell them into the prompt market. And what we do is we lock in that contango along the curve so that we're locking in sort of a $4 or $5 per barrel margin um, by selling in Q3 versus selling in Q2. Now, if WTI rises by more than that that $4 or $5 increment that the uh, curve was showing us back in Q2, we'll show a hedging loss. But the reality is um, we're not speculating in the market. What we're doing is locking in incremental margin by selling in one period versus another. So don't get confused. by the hedging uh, gains and losses, they really are a function of how WTI is moving in the marketplace, whether it goes up through one period or down through one period. But our hedging program is designed not to speculate, but to lock in incremental margin.
9: Okay, but, but thanks for that clarification. Um, I think another question I had was returning to the, the transaction. Um, I appreciate that you probably can't give too much color around this right now but um when you look through asset monetization opportunities or sort of i guess you know optimizing the portfolio you know past post transaction post merger um could you maybe help us to think about how you evaluate that just sort of what's the what's the construct by which you go through and and, and you know balancing you know profitability versus you know synergies with the overall portfolio um you know, specifically, I was thinking outside of the outside of sort of black oil production, the 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 that portfolio that you'll have on a consolidated basis. Any color there would would be helpful.
2: Sure. Um, you know, anytime you you put two companies of of this kind of scale and and uh, scope together, you're 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 going to go through a process, and we have and are continuing to go through a process of. You know determining what is core to this business and what is non-core and you know as you can imagine there there are a lot of criteria that kind of go in into into those decisions but but really at, at the base of them you know it, it is about the value those assets uh can or can generate um and their strategic importance to to the company so you know we will i think people can take it as a given uh, that we are, we, we are going to proceed uh, to look at monetizing, you know, non-core assets that, that are falling out, out of this combination. And, you know, and I, uh, from, my own, from my own perspective, I mean, I, I think I, I, I don't know that I'm, I'm willing to share it right now, but I think we already have a pretty good understanding of, of, the, kind of uh, the kind of assets that we're going to take a really hard look at. Uh, in that regard and and we're also going to be cognizant um, of of are they worth more to other are they worth more to other people but I, and I think the other issue you know is is going to be is is the time right and and can we actually transact at values that are are value creating for our shareholders so uh you know expect more from us on this I think we're going to act uh fairly fairly quickly and and uh, uh just yeah i mean i it, it's just going to take us a little bit of time uh to uh uh till we're at a point where we can talk a little more freely about it okay appreciate that thank you very much yeah no worries
1: next question comes from phil gresh with jp morgan
5: yes hi good morning um I, I was just thinking about um the rail contract that you have um that you signed up Um, A little while ago, I think it goes maybe till the end of 2022, and I I apologize if you addressed this on the last call. But uh, what around what happens with that um, once we get to the end of this period, and and now that you have the takeaway, um, you know, the excess takeaway that that Husky would provide.
4: Hey Phil, it's uh, Keith Chesson. Yeah, you're uh, you're right that uh, some of those contracts fall off. Kind of at the back end of 2022, so we'll will evaluate that at, at that time. Um, you know, what I would tell you is, you know, we, we quickly ramped down the program in uh, in the first part of, of this year when commodity prices collapsed. Um, but we didn't uh, we didn't sit on our hands through that time. We actually uh, continued to negotiate around those contracts and um, and have been able to further reduce our, our variable cost on those contracts. And because of uh, you know, some small investment that we made in, in the Bruderheim facility uh, last year, we're actually able to store a bunch of unit trains at the facility, which, which allows us to ramp up the program relatively quickly. So I think in the past, we've talked about this, uh, this overall program not lending itself to kind of quick ramp up and ramp down you know, in, in the span of kind of less than six months. But what we've, what we've been able to do is take a portion of the program and really have Uh, agility and flexibility to ramp it up and ramp it down over the period of of a couple of months now. So, you know, we will look at uh, kind of market opportunities to be able to do that um, at those reduced costs uh, for transport to the Gulf Coast kind of over the the next couple of years. And then, you know, coming at the end of the contracts, you know, we'll kind of look at egress and, and how it's all shaken out, whether or not we would want to extend those or not.
5: Right. Okay. Yeah. I guess my follow-up to that would just be with with your comments about having lowered the costs. Does does this mean that the new transport costs that we've seen this quarter, which are lower than prior quarters, uh, is is a function of that cost reduction, given um, uh, you know, rail uh, not being utilized? And then, um, is, is this the right way to think about the go forward? Uh, and and if we go into for coming out of curtailment, do you think you'd actually maybe start using that rail as we move into 2021?
4: Yes. So, Phil, you shouldn't be surprised to see us use the rail kind of in the fourth quarter here. We uh, we are looking at starting up a portion of the program. In November, it still enables us to, to accumulate additional production credits versus having to acquire them in the market uh, through the supplemental production allowance. And then in December, you know, it really comes down to a uh, cost-benefit analysis, and with the cost reductions we've been able to achieve on the variable cost, you know, we can actually make this program economic to run barrels down to the Gulf Coast and realize higher netbacks. Uh, so you shouldn't be surprised to see us move some volume, obviously not the full program through the fourth quarter, but some volume through the fourth quarter, uh, which will help improve our, our overall netbacks.
2: Yeah, Phil, it's it's Alex. Just maybe one thing I'd add to that. It. it you know, this this uh, improvement in pricing we've been able to achieve is is really significant, and it's a it's a tribute to Keith's team, but but also our freight partners. Uh, they have been uh, uh, really good to work with in in making this a much more compelling opportunity going forward.
5: And Alex, from a macro perspective, um, with the removal of the curtailment, do you do you think the broader industry is going to need? rail i know i know that um you know that the commentary suggested not until mid 2021 um in, in as the decision point for for um for why to remove the curtailment but what's your view
2: yeah i mean i i uh i i suspect i mean i i, I think i've been pretty consistent about this but you know i think one of one of the very clear features of our industry is you know, I think all of us have been very successful in driving costs out of our operation. And, you know, I I, I suspect with curtailment going away, uh, those barrels on the sidelines, be they you know sort of, you know, 200 to 400,000 barrels a day, I do expect them uh, to come back. And, and uh, I I would not be terribly surprised at all to see rail. Uh, you know, I. I I don't think we're going to see it at where it was uh, a year and a bit ago. But I, as Keith said, you know, it, it looks like it's making uh, re- economic sense for us, and uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see rail volumes moving up here over the over the next few months.
10: Great, thank you.
1: Next question comes from Manav Gupta with Credit
10: Suisse. Um, hi guys, um, quarter over quarter, there was a lot of improvement in the net pack. Obviously, the benchmarks were more supportive, but just trying to understand uh, what was condensate pricing a big headwind for you in 2Q, and as that kind of lag went away, you started closing the gap to the benchmark, and that led to an improvement in net packs. If you could comment a little on the condensate pricing lag and how it helped you or hurt you in 2Q versus 3Q.
4: I'm going to have it's uh, it's Keith. You know, I, I think this is kind of a, a build on what John had talked about earlier, and and kind of how we are trying to improve our netbacks by moving barrels out of one period into another. Um, you know, so so in the second quarter we were able to store a lot of barrels. Uh, obviously, those the pricing if we had to sold them in that quarter would have been at at uh, very low pricing. Uh, we stored those and moved those into Q3 quarter and realized uh, much higher realizations for those so i think if you look at our sales relative to production you can see you know an increase in sales in the third quarter relative to production and and that's really putting those barrels in the market in a higher price environment and uh and that obviously all flows back into an improved netback for us
10: perfect Uh, a quick follow-up here is we're seeing a very positive trend in transport and blending costs going down at foster obviously rail is a part of it but uh if you look at from 1Q where it was 1437 now all the way down to 860, is there anything else that you're doing at Foster Creek to push the cost down in transport and blending besides rail, which is helping you out?
4: You know, Manuv, I think you'll see uh, a lot of variability, uh, you know, quarter to quarter. It all depends on, you know, barrels that we move by rail, as as you indicated, but also barrels that we move on pipeline and which, which production we choose to move down the pipeline. So some, some months and quarters it may be Foster, some months and quarters it may be Christina Lake. It all depends on how we can get the maximum value for our barrel and, and that will drive some of that variability in, in transport costs. But, but you know you, we are gonna utilize obviously our assets to maximize that value. You're, you're right that with rail off through the third quarter, our transportation costs are down. Um, because of that, but uh, you know, we will use those assets to to, to capture incremental uh, value for the company. So, so th- you will see a a bit of uh, variability quarter to quarter, asset to asset.
10: And last question is: uh, Enbridge Line Three replacement, any color, anything you are hearing out there? Uh, do you think this could be a 2021 event? Thank you.
4: You know everything that we're hearing of, um is that they are marching towards, uh, you know, a 2021 startup. You know, obviously, uh, some critical decisions coming here in the November time period uh, around some permits, and and that will then drive construction, you know, of that project. So we'll be watching kind of through the fourth quarter uh, intently, and if if they get their permits uh, and start construction, then then you know we we do think a 2021 startup is realistic. Thank you
1: for taking my questions. Next question comes from Chris Cox with Raymond Jean.
6: Uh, thanks guys and, and thanks for taking my question. Uh, maybe, maybe just the first one really in the quarter, just any comments on uh, why you didn't also record any impairment at Wood River and, and just anything that maybe differentiated um, bad asset test versus what you conducted at forger
8: Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's John McKenzie. One of the things we do with all our assets every quarter is assess for indicators of impairment, and obviously with, uh, you know, refining cracks dropping as precipitously as they have been and and not recovering as quickly as they have, um, you know, we, we took that as an indicator of impairment in our downstream. So we evaluate both of those assets. Now, one thing I would say uh, is that Wood River is a more complex refinery with, with much greater um, scale efficiency than we have at Borger. So, um, you know, the reality is when we looked at that one versus the net book value and, and we kind of ran it out on the discounted cash flow basis, uh, we got to the answer that it is that we did get to. But relative to the carrying value of Wood River, we did not have an impairment.
6: Okay, thanks. And then maybe circling uh, back to, to the transaction with Husky here, just wanted to be, dig a bit deeper into some of the talk about kind of physical integration between FCCL and Lloyd complex. And I'm curious how much of your diluent value chain you think you could integrate there. And, you know, I, I believe your current diluent supply is also tied to some longer term contracts on uh, you know, Cold Lake and, and Polaris. And how do you think those contracts on those pipelines might play into those plans or, or even some of your other contracts for the downstream?
8: Yeah, we're, we're right on the front end of this, Chris, and, and when we did our synergies and put out our targets, we were really clear that we didn't want to include any of that in our synergies. The $1.2 billion that we put out uh, as capital and operating synergies are really those synergies that we have a really high confidence um, that we're going to be able to get in a very short period of time. Um, so when you talk about the broader physical integration between FCCL and Lloyd through time, You know, that's an exciting opportunity for us. You know, we think that, um, you know, through time, Lloyd is going to be a very strategic asset. um, And how we, um, you know, integrate that and work um, through the molecular integration, not just on FCCL molecules going into Lloyd, but but condensate coming back, um, is something that we are working through today. But it's it's too early uh, in our minds to be talking about you know uh, future values and and um, um, you know magnitude of integration that's possible there, but it's really clear to us that that is a legacy asset at uh, Lloydminster, and it's going to give us a lot of optionality on the integration going forward.
6: Maybe just all, I'll ask in a slightly different way: do, to to achieve that physical integration, do, do it, will it require uh, negotiations with other parties between other than just you and Husky?
8: Yeah,
6: it, it will. Okay. Thank you.
1: Next question comes from Matt Murphy with Tudor Pickering Holt.
6: Hi, thanks, guys. I uh, appreciate with the acquisition
11: release laying out your uh, your carbon ambitions over the long term and that it'll take some time to, to work through firming up plans there. But I guess given the perception of oil sands as being more emissions-intensive than other barrels around the world, and, and certainly appreciate that all oil sands isn't quite the same um, but but given those ambitions, just wondering if you guys could provide a bit of a teaser on some of the things you're thinking about in um, meeting those ambitions, whether we're talking solvents, um, carbon sinks, or, or otherwise. Thanks. Yeah, uh,
2: thanks, Matt. I mean, when, when we came out with, with our targets and our ESG targets in the spring, I mean, we, I think we gave a little bit of color uh, around that. And what I would tell you is, you know, we... We didn't come out with those targets until we had done a, a comprehensive economic and, and uh, engineering analysis of sort of what options, not, not just what, what were possible, but what options were actually achievable within our business plan. We, we, it, w- it would be pointless to come out with an ESG, ESG targets that uh, weren't grounded in the business plan. And so that, that was what we did, and, and if you think about it, you know, I, I would kind of say it's it's a little bit all of the above. That um, you know, it, we've obviously been a leader in solvent technology. Uh, I expect that uh, solvent technology will will be uh, a part of it. Uh, carbon sinks is is something we are, you know, we're looking at uh, carbon capture and, and sequestration. But you know, one of the things I, I and and you know, there may be you know there could be an element of of uh, acquiring carbon offsets. But the, the one thing I would say that I think a lot of people don't appreciate, um, you know, although there are a lot of projects that require capital, um, you know, whether, it is a, whether it's cogen, whether it is solvent technology, carbon capture, um, there's actually, we believe there are a great deal of, of benefits uh, that we can reduce our, our GHG intensity by changing how we operate uh, the assets. And uh, so there, there's actually a whole suite of a whole suite of things, and you know now with with Husky coming on, um, you know there, there's not only how we operate assets, but what assets on a go forward basis get capital, and what assets don't get capital, and all of those uh, have the ability to meaningfully improve uh, the GHD intensity.
11: Yeah, I appreciate the thoughts there. If I may, and follow up on a completely unrelated note, um, just on the approach to integration with the Husky transaction, I guess if I go back to um, the 2019 investor day, excuse me, for example, which I appreciate is is rolled away at this point, um, but I I think the strategy at the time was to take advantage of accessing a healthy amount of refining capacity in the U.S. market, um, rather than owning it yourselves for, for a sort of integration. Um, I guess, can you talk about what's changed there in the thinking? Was it just an opportunity with Husky that was just really hard to pass up, um, or did something, I guess, change in how you're thinking about um, the value of integration, whether um, a, a read through and how you're thinking about pipeline progression um, from Canada?
2: Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a whole lot of things, but it, you know what, I, I'd maybe go back to where my comments have been on integration from the start. Matt, and I, you know, I think, I think what I've been very consistent on, I've always said, look, I, I love the integrated business model. I, I looked at our, our competitors and said uh, it would be fantastic to have that kind of business model and take the volatility out of, out of our cash flow and earnings related to our exposure to Alberta heavy oil pricing. But, you know, when, when we looked at that, you know, pr- like very in-depthly a couple of years ago, you know, at the time... Um, you know, crack spreads were $18, $20, um, and uh, every refining or, or or processing, upgrading business or asset we looked at was just extraordinarily uh, highly valued, and, and I'm just not very interested in, in picking off assets at, at the peak of the market. And that's why, you know, we, we came to a strategy at that time of focusing on, rather than on, on processing, of actually looking at, at opportunities to um, you know to get our barrels to market you know via logistics op- to via logistics uh, whether it whether it was pipe or rail where we could achieve a global price for our for our heavy barrels and you know the, the obvious difference is, is since the pandemic you know you you've seen a you've seen a situation where everybody's values have come down but if you look at the, the valuation metrics of, of the, the Husky merger, um, you would see, you know, if, if you kind of break that business up into an upstream and downstream business, however, however you do it, um, you know, that, that, that downstream 400,000 barrels a day of molecularly integrated upgrading and refining uh, to, our, to our barrels i mean the the valuation was was absolutely uh compelling,
8: yeah, I would just add to that, Matt. I think Alex used a really important phrase there called molecular integration and and that's what this this um opportunity really presents uh for somenova going forward is the ability to have processing units that are tied to our molecules you know that consume the molecules that we produce. And i think that gives a whole different level of optionality as well as a whole different reduction of volatility going forward so this isn't just about integration it's about molecular integration going forward and tightening up our value chains and shortening up um, them to the extent that we can
1: next question comes from chris tillett with barclays uh
4: yeah, hey guys, good morning. Thanks for uh taking my question. Just a quick one for me. Um on the conventional side, it looks like you're you know resuming some activity there in the fourth quarter. Um and and my the my read is that it's just tied to sort of stronger seasonal pricing. Um but just wanted to confirm that or, or see if maybe you know this was a sign of interest to, to pursue some incremental opportunities on the conventional side in twenty
2: twenty one. Hey Chris, it's Alex. No, I mean I I mean, you you look at you know, uh, we've obviously been very disciplined over the last few years with the deep basin, and, and you know, given given gas prices uh, where we found them over the last two or three years, the the right decision was was not to put material capital to that asset. And you know, this, this is an opportunity. Uh, you know, with with gas prices as you've mentioned, um, you know, we we can we can lock up gas prices. Uh, for a few years at very attractive levels. Uh, It's a a short cycle. These are very, very high uh, IRR kind of drill-to-fill opportunities, and and it allows us uh, to take that asset from a decline to to basically uh, 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 keeping it at least flat uh, to modestly growing. Mm
4: -hmm. Understood. Uh, Thanks for that. And then maybe just as a follow-up, anything you can offer in terms of the role that those assets might play uh, in the the pro forma company,
2: yeah I mean I, you know we I, I had responded to that question earlier about about asset sales and i I think as everybody knows uh, you know we we took a really hard look a, a couple of years ago at whether there was you know whether there was an opportunity to monetize a portion of of that convent, of that conventional business for Synovus. and you know, I, I think you can kind of assume if, if you put Sonovis's conventional business together with Huskies uh, in a you know, in a higher price uh, environment. I, I I you know, we're gonna take a really we're gonna take a really hard look at that. I think my observation today is even though the prices have come up, it it's still a pretty tough market uh, for value, but I expect that will likely uh, improve over over the over the the next little while, especially if prices stay where they are. So we're we're gonna we're gonna take a very hard look at that. Okay, great, that's helpful. Thank you. No worries.
1: Next question comes from Neil Metta with Goldman Sachs.
12: Thanks, guys. Uh, twice in a week. Uh, so the I guess the first question here is, is maybe it's for you, Jan given you know the Husky assets really well, but as you looked at, you know, the last couple of years of of Husky, one of the challenges has been operational execution and excellence, and and that's shown up in different ways in in both upstream and downstream in terms of of performance. Uh, As you look at those assets, um, do you think there are things Novus can bring to the table to kind of get them up to speed? And how do you, as you went through the process of, of valuing these assets, how did you take that into consideration?
8: Yeah, it's uh, it's John, not Jeff. Neil. But, uh, <laughs> I, thought,
12: I, thought, I thought I said Jeff. Sorry, I didn't. didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I
8: think you might be twenty minutes ahead of yourself. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. Yeah. But uh, I tell you, this was a, an absolute uh, number one concern for for us. Alex has mentioned right off the top of this call that safety is always has been and always will be our number one concern going forward. So when we looked at um, you know this asset base, I would tell you that we had unfettered access to do our due diligence, and we have been um, at this for you know nearly six months. And, and I would say the diligence that was done um, on all aspects of these assets is really unprecedented in terms of my experience with the M&A market, um, particularly on the E and P side. When we look at the asset base um, that we acquired, um, you know. Everything on the upstream that is operated is, is really right in our wheelhouse, and it's, it's right inside what we really do well as a company, and we are very comfortable uh, with the reservoirs, the conditions of the assets, the conditions of the commercial uh, arrangements over the top, and, and we think we can add value there, um, and we think that uh, that value can be realized in a fairly short period of time. As it relates to the downstream, you know, we took a lot of time to look at uh, some of the improvements and some of the um, changes that Husky has been making through time all the way from um, new personnel coming into their operation all the way through their, their safety process, uh, safety systems as well as their um, asset um, condition reports as well as reliability and safety practices. And I remind you, we have two directors on our board who are very, very deep in terms of um, refining assets and the operations thereof. So it's something we took our time on. It's something that was absolutely top of mind for ourselves and the board. I think we've done a thorough job of um, ferreting out uh, our level of comfort in this. And, and we're comfortable that on a go-forward basis, you know, we're on the right path and, and that we've uh, <laughs> Um, you know, satisfied ourselves that um, you know we're, we are not going to have these kind of uh, incidents going forward.
12: Yep, great, and and the follow up here is um, I, I had asked about this over the weekend, but I don't know if there's been a subsequent update to any conversations with either the ratings agencies or, or your or credit investors about uh, how how they view this transaction a pro forma way and whether this gets us the, the breadcrumbs to getting back to to investment grade.
8: You know, I, I can't speak for the rating agencies. They've all put out their, their comments now, and, um, you know, you can read into those what you will, but, um, you know, it's our expectation um, that we are sowing the seeds for a return to investment grade in short order. Okay. That would be Great. something that's very important to us.
1: Thank you, John. Thanks, Alex.
8: Thanks. Next question.
1: Next question comes from Mike Dunn with Steful first energy
3: thanks uh, good morning everyone um not to uh beat it to death but uh I did have a, another question on the um i guess the hedging strategy around timing of your sales versus your production um you know maybe naively I had thought that this was um something that generally maybe some of the oil sands big players would would do based on their outlooks for 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 um, maybe seasonal turnarounds for them and others. so just wondering um, John or alex if 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 timing of sales versus production was something that was strategically done in the past without hedging and then a second part to that is um, how did you weigh the cost benefits of delaying the sales of your own uh, equity barrels versus you know, locking in that contango by buying third-party barrels and delivering them later. Thanks.
8: Yeah, uh, Mike, it's John. Listen, this is something we've always done, Um, but what I would tell you, um, you know, going forward is, is what is really important to us is maximizing the free cash flow to the organization. So what we look at is is can we sell into the future using the assets that we have, and, and we have pipelines and about 10 million barrels of of storage available to us to increase the free cash flow um, in any future period. Now we do attach a cost to that. There is an internal cost um, of doing that, and, and you know that kind of approximates you know a few hundred basis points beyond our cost of capital. Um, but we, you know, we do that on a, a diligent and rigorous basis to make sure that, um, you know, we're maximizing free cash flow, maximizing returns to shareholders.
3: Okay, thanks, uh, John. That's it for me.
8: Yeah, the, the other thing I would say, Mike, is, is you know, this this is not something we're speculating on. You know, what we're doing is taking what the market gives us in terms of the shape of the futures curves. And all we're doing is, is using our assets and playing along the length of that curve to maximize um, future cash flows for the company.
3: Right. And, and John, uh, forgive me, there's been a lot of uh, quarterly press releases out. So if I missed it on the in the body of, of your uh, MD&A, did you guys quantify um, like all in, including the financial WTI hedging losses, you know, the net gain? Uh, from that strategy versus, I guess, timing your sales to be, you know, in line with your production volumes.
8: Yeah, what we haven't given you is the net gain, uh, but what you see is the accounting in the MDNA, and, and yeah. I And I think that's what's causing the, the confusion, is the mark to market on the financial components of this versus what the underlying physical business is doing.
3: Okay, so you're keeping that number close to your yes. chest. Okay.
8: Yes,
1: okay, thanks. <laughs> Next question comes from Harry Matier with Barclays.
7: Hi, good morning. Um, you know, first
5: question, c- can you maybe talk about your intentions with the pro forma debt structure and if you plan to have pari passu treatment for the synovus and Husky bonds after closing and and, you know, perhaps if so, how you're going to go about doing that?
8: Yeah. Harry, it's John again we're, we're we're looking at all the options as around to your question Perry Pursue and um you know I'm, that's that's something we'll uh, we're going to have to get back to you on and I'm not um I'm not going to talk about that this morning uh what I would say though um is um you know we are of the view that investment grade is um you know very important to this new company it's it's one of the you know um synergies that we we believe, you know, haven't taken any value for, but we think it's really important going forward. So you can expect us to do, um, you know, everything required to get us back into that space. Now, what we've also committed to do, and we'll do this in in the reasonably short uh, term, is we'll come back to you with, you know, a complete financial framework that would not only talk about capital structure and how we see debt playing into that but it will also talk about capital allocation and and the screens that we intend to run on that together with um, shareholder returns but we want to do that in a comprehensive way rather than give you you know one piece of the framework or do it incrementally through time
5: okay great that uh certainly that'll be helpful um and then uh, apologies if i missed this um you know, either on the call last weekend or earlier today. But have you guys talked about upfront costs to realize your synergy targets? And clearly, they're a major driver of the deal. But I'm just wondering, sort of, how much cash you think goes out the door initially to actually capture those?
2: Hey, Harry, it's Alex. Um, you know, I think the if if you want to think about sort of the costs of uh, of putting the two companies together, think about a one-time cost of just over about $500 million, and. You know that compares to the 1.2 billion a year of annual run rate synergies that that we you know expect to largely get in in 2021 and get the the entirety of them in 2022. Thank you. That's helpful. Okay.
1: Our last question comes from the media with Robert Tuttle with Bloomberg News.
2: Uh yeah, hi. Um I noticed there was a um a permit or something uh, filed with the AER about a
3: uh DRU that's going to be built near your rail terminal um and you guys were looking at DRUs. Um what what's your outlook on that?
2: I mean, is there a a plan to perhaps have one there at the uh, a bigger operating one at your rail terminal?
4: Hey Robert, uh, it's Keith on you know we filed that uh regulatory application just to give us the flexibility around that project uh obviously with the uh uh with the transaction that's that's underway obviously we're we're taking a, another look at obviously the the DRU and and the location of the DRU so you know that was just a a, a step in the process to make sure that we had uh flexibility
2: yeah Ro- robert it's it's alex just to be really crystal clear on that we We kind of said when we were looking at the DRU that we were going to do the engineering and permitting to give us the ability uh, to have the option uh, to go forward on a a DRU and no one one should think about that filing as anything more than just uh, carrying through on, on, on that direction.
5: Okay. Thank you.
6: No worries.
1: And at this time, I'll turn the call over to Mr. Pube.
2: I think that's the uh, the end of our questions. So uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, taking the time and enjoy the rest of your day.
1: This concludes today's conference call.
0: You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's Investor Relations section on their website. See you next time.